heading back to your seats. All right. <clears throat> well, first of all, I want to take a minute just to thank Pastor Michael for an awesome summer series in the Psalms. Uh, I know I've been watered and fed. Uh, I think it's really cool if you think about it. Brother Corey started us off in Psalm 1. And Pastor Lance took us into Psalm 149. And then Pastor Michael walked us through reclaiming our wonder when the night is long, but God is good. What his mercy did for me, Psalm 51. If it hadn't been for God, Psalm 124. Sing to the Lord, Psalm 96. Don't sell out, Psalm 73. Seeking refuge in the Lord, Psalm 16. And God is still on the throne, Psalm 2. And brothers and sisters, I am so blessed to share the last psalm in the summer series with us this Lord's Day. And if you will, turn your Bible to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And I've entitled this message, David's Song of God's Goodness and Godness. David's Song of God's Goodness and Godness. Now, let me, let me start by saying something to you, church. You've got a a fabulous, just a, a blessed preacher and Pastor Michael. Uh, Pastor Lance is, is just growing in leaps and bounds as a preacher of the word. And I'm always uh, edified when I listen to him preach. But, you know, Lynn and I were talking this week. And you know, part of my gift and those that have been with me before, I think, is, is, is teaching so this is not going to be so much a message whereby we're going to have subtitles and topics as we run through them. What I'm going to do is I'm literally going to walk through the 23rd Psalm for you. And I pray that you allow me liberty because this might take a minute. I mean, we'll get out of here before five o'clock, I promise. But um, I think we all would agree that certain sections of the Bible are like old friends, aren't they? They've been with us for a long time, as long as some of us can remember. When, when life has us doubled over with laughter or, or drenched with tears, they were right there beside us. Kind of a, a constant companion. In fact, they've been with us so long that we know them inside out. Uh, at least we think we do. Then one day, they tell us a story about themselves that, that we've never heard before. Or they reveal a secret that they've never shared. I love that about the scriptures. I don't know about you. you know, I've been blessed to be able to walk through the scriptures now for the last 39 years, 40 in September. And I've got to tell you, every time I go through, I find something that I didn't see when I walked through it before. And so it is with Psalm 23. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, Psalm 23 is the center gem of a three-gem ring. We talk about context in preaching. A, a center gem of a three-gem ring between the suffering Christ of Psalm 22 and the sovereign Christ of Psalm 24 is the shepherd Christ of Psalm 23. Now, of this psalm, Leah, this is for you. Martin Luther said this, Of all the figures that are applied to God in the Old Testament, that of a shepherd is the most beautiful. It brings to the godly, when they read it or hear it, a, a confidence, a, a consolation, a security, 
It's kind of like the word father. The shepherd psalm is nestled between Christ's suffering and sovereignty, providing that confidence and consolation Luther spoke about. When you look at this, this psalm, you find the feelings of suffering, but also a song, a song of God's goodness and His godness. And this is a picture of the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd knows about the wounds of life, brothers and sisters. Wounds that you and I may think these things will just never heal. But the fact that Christ has suffered, as seen in Psalm 22, is proof that God can identify with us and our wounds. Psalm 22 begins with, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's quoted by Christ on the cross, showing us that he identifies with our utter despair. The fact that Christ is sovereign, as seen in Psalm 24, is proof of his godness. It's proof that his godness can rescue us from our problems. Psalm 24, which follows the shepherd's psalm, promises a triumphant entry of the King of glory, of the Lord of hosts, who will come valiantly through the mighty gates and everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 24, 7 and 8. And the fact that Christ is our shepherd, as we will see this morning, is proof that God's loving goodness and His majestic godness will watch over us poor, helpless, needy sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for His namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Father, we come before you and we ask for your guidance. We ask God that in this time that your spirit would keep us alive and alert to your word, that you would drive us, Father, to you this morning, that, Father, we would, we would hear you, we would see you, and we would love you more. God, may we worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, if you will allow me some liberty here, that's the CSB translation. A mentor of mine when I was in seminary was Dr. Daniel Block. Dr. Daniel Block is a Hebrew scholar. Now, I mean, you know, big words, Hebrew scholar. But the fact is, Dr. Block has spent 50 years of his life in the Old Testament translating the Word of God. Now, I see my sister, Candace, over there nodding her head because I know she loves Hebrew in the Old Testament, too. If, you will, if you'll allow me, I want to read that psalm again, but I want to read his translation. 
of that psalm to us. Listen to how he breaks down this psalm. It's not going to be very different, but listen for the nuances. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. In parentheses, he wrote anything. He causes me to lie down in green pastures, in parentheses, grass. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the circles of righteousness for his namesake. Even when I walk in the valley of darkness, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You set a table before me, before my adversaries. You anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. But only goodness and grace chase me all the days of my life, and I will dwell rest in the house of the Lord for length of days. You've got to admit, that sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? And as I was working through this text, I told Michael I might go a different direction and talk about the names of God in this. But if you look through what I just read you, you will find seven names, seven names of God in those verses. Je Jehovah Roah, the Lord my shepherd. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. He is Jehovah Shalom, the, the Lord my peace. He is Jehovah Tiskanu, the Lord of righteousness. He is Jehovah Shammah, the Lord present. He is Jehovah Ezra, the Lord my help. He is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my shepherd of victory. He is Jehovah Makadesh, the Lord my holiness, my sanctification. He is Jehovah Mana, the Lord my portion. He is Jehovah Shaleg, the Lord my inheritance. Oh, man. It is so beautiful when you sit down and look at all the names of God hidden in that psalm. And so I want to begin to walk with you in verse 1, brothers and sisters. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, it was, it was many years before I could say I love Psalm 23. You say, what are you, some kind of weirdo? You know, one of the things I appreciated about our teaching through the Psalms is Pastor Michael, Pastor Lance, and, and Corey, the different perspectives they brought. I like the fact that Corey kind of took us through a different look at Psalm 1. You know, it took more than 20 years and, and some major sorrows, church, before the key turned in the lock. And it was then that I realized that the David of Psalm 23, he needed restoration. In verse 3, he had visited the valley of the shadow of death. He had faced evil. He had enemies. This was a well-tested believer speaking from long experience with God. His confidence about the future was based on experiences in the past. But listen to me, church. David was not staking everything simply on his own experience. You see, David's not the first person in the Bible to say the Lord is my shepherd. He was, he was simply applying to himself something he had learned from Jacob. Brothers and sisters, when we hear the scriptures, do we do that? In Genesis 48, 15, and 16, it records a moving scene at the end of Jacob's life when he blesses Joseph and his sons. It goes like this. The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd, all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, 
Bless these boys. I took some Hebrew liberty there. Jacob had not been the easiest sheep. You guys remember that, right? I mean, even after his encounter with the Jacob, with the angel of Jabbok, he needed some untwisting, just like us. His sad repetition of parents, the parents' folly of having favorite children led to family dysfunction, jealousy, sin, and sorrow. But now he looked back and with clear vision marveled at the way that the shepherd had pursued and preserved him. Pursued and preserved him. And listen, hurt him only to protect him. And brought him lot of good. His own Joseph had already seen that in, in, in 45, 5 through 8, and he would later confirm it. What others meant for evil, God meant for good. And let me tell you what that is, church. That's the Old Testament version of Romans 8, 28. What others meant for evil, God meant for good. See, David had learned that what was true for Jacob was also true for him. It's also true for us. And without mentioning any specific situations in his own life, he describes the Lord shepherding in a way that shows how applicable it is to every situation in our lives as well. When you know that the Lord is your shepherd, you can be confident that you lack nothing. David records that even in his old age, he had never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Psalm 37, 25. And, and the verb that David uses, and, and Brother Corey, this is for you. The verb that David uses, not want, lack nothing, occurs other places in the scriptures. During the wilderness wanderings, the people had no lack. Exodus 16, 18. Moses could say, these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Deuteronomy 2, 7. God promised the same would be true in the land he was giving to them. And even went so far as to make provision for this in the law concerning gleaming, gleaning from the, from the fields. You know, David was probably also thinking how Yahweh had led the multitude through the wilderness. Psalm 72, 20, 77, 20, Psalm 78, 2. And it, and it proved himself to be the shepherd of Israel in Psalm 80, verse 1. See, if Yahweh could sustain this enormous flock, you realize how many people came out of Egypt. If Yahweh could sustain this enormous flock, David concluded, then surely he could provide for one sheep. And now the Lord had vindicated his faith by meeting all his needs. Let me ask you a question. How about you this morning? Is the Lord your shepherd? What looks at first like a shepherd's lessons from shepherding turns out to be the confidence of a believer based on the truth of the Word of God and the revelation of His Godness. You know, perhaps, brothers and sisters, this is less David, the pastor, taking care of sheep and more David, the expositor, applying God's Word to himself. He therefore came to share the faith of Jacob and to experience the sovereign provisions of the God of the Exodus. You know, I believe that Jesus saw depth of meaning in these words. You know, I've been watching this, uh, this movie, The Chosen, thanks to my, to my brother Adam here. 
And you see some of the humanity of Jesus. You know, I can see him singing the song with joy. He looked back at his fathers David and Jacob and like them trusted his father to provide all his needs. And indeed, as he explained to his puzzled disciples and to us when we read the New Testament, his father provided his nourishment. Listen, y'all, I have food to eat that you don't know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. But Jesus must have read Psalm 23 with a deep sense of burden also. You see, because he knew that ultimately he himself was the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. See, what Jacob and David saw only dimly, Jesus saw clearly. The shepherd must suffer for his sheep. And as the good shepherd, Jesus would, would take the place of his sheep and he would be led to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, 7. For them he would die. He would give everything of himself to provide everything for us. Let me say that again. He would give everything of himself to provide everything for us. Church, what's the implication there? Since he was not spared but delivered up for us all, we can be sure he will give us everything we need. Romans 8.32 Listen, this is what a Christian means. This is what you and I mean when we're saying the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let me pose it in a question to you. Is Jesus your shepherd? What do you lack? If he is not your shepherd, what do you have? Let's go to verse 2. Let's keep walking. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. At as we move through Psalm 23, we find wonderful examples of Jesus' care, protection, and imagery that kind of latches on to your imagination. But you've got to be honest, right? For the contemporary mind, for the urban setting, the background of this imagery, it's not known to many of us. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you saw a shepherd wandering through the West End? When's the last time you heard bleeding? Oh, it's been a while in Louisville, but there was a, you know, there's Nanny Goes Strut and Billy Goes Strut down at the end of Market Street. That's where they used to take the sheep and the goats down to the slaughterhouse. It's still there. But for us, it's, it, we, don't, we don't know what shepherd imagery is about. You know, it's actually a metaphor for kingship in the ancient Near East. So for David to say, Yahweh is my shepherd, implies more than a lovely pastoral picture. See, Jesus is saying, Yahweh is my shepherd king. So David sings in the song of the divine king who guides and sustains him. And this is initially seen in verse 2 using that pastoral metaphor. But David notes what God does for him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And as you look closely at the language of this verse, it becomes clear that God's care for his people is extensive. And it's all-encompassing. In the Hebrew, the text literally reads, In pastures of grass, he makes me to lie down. Upon waters of rest, he guides me. So think about it. In the semi-arid landscape of ancient Palestine, grazing land was not abundant. 
Listen, you know, Lynn and I watched Heartland for a while. Listen to me. Arab Palestine is not like Heartland. There ain't no green grass fields just overflowing in abundance and you go from one to the next to the next to the next. It's not like that in Palestine. I look. Grazing grass in that area is not abundant. Shepherds would have to guide their flocks to the places with enough grass for their sheep. It's so weird there because it's dry and arid and it rains and little sprouts of grass will clump up all over the place. But fields, not so many. The shepherd needed to know where to go, the best route to take, and the pace at which to lead the flock. I want you to notice something about this, this, this scripture. It doesn't talk about Jesus driving a flock. Jesus doesn't drive us. He leads us. Let me, let me say something to moms and dads here. Good picture for us in shepherding our kids. Try not to drive your kids. Lead them. Lead them. Now, you got to admit, right, this is going to be kind of hard. Dry, difficult terrain to cross. There's dangers from wild beasts, thieves along the way. I mean, this reality underscores the greatness of God seen in these verses. The phrase, pastures of grass, highlights the abundant provision of God. The word translated pasture signifies places of grazing. It suggests something like green meadows. In addition, the addition of grass translated in the ESV, which I read to myself during the week, it kind of underlines the abundance of the, the provision that's going on here. There's a lot. The word often refers to the lavish, bountiful grass of springtime after the rainy season has watered the earth. We see that in Psalm 32, 2 and 2 Samuel 23. Therefore, the, the phrase expresses the image of fresh, plenteous grazing land. After a long, weary journey, there'd, there'd be no greater destination imaginable, would there? I mean, the text also reveals, listen, the centrality of God's action. When you dig into this text and why I'm walking through it with you, the language is in the causative. You say, Pastor, Brother John, what the heck is that? Simple. He makes me lie down. It's in the causative. You see, the shepherd king is sovereignly guiding David to his abundance and giving him a place to dwell. The dwelling place idea ties in into the refuge image that we find all through the Psalms. And it's also present in the rest of the Psalm 23 and 5 and 6. So that we see that God provides a safe place for David to receive the provision he desperately needs. Have you ever been there? I see some heads nodding. Some of us have been there. See, but David's description of the Lord's provision here is not done. The parallel statement in this verse yields another image of God's care for his people. David literally says, Upon waters of rest, he guides me. Upon waters of rest, he guides me. See, the provision of water is essential for life, amen? Especially for a flock in a dry and challenging land. A place of quiet waters, listen, not rushing waters, would be the setting for the shepherd to water and to wash the sheep. But it's also a place where he could clean and mend the wounds of the sheep sustained during that tumultuous journey. As you read through the Psalms, the language of God's guiding David in this verse is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Exodus uh, 15.3, Psalm 1.3. 1, 1, you know, uh, Brother Corey read that to us earlier. 
Matter of fact, let me just skip back for a quick minute. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears fruit in his season, whose leaves does not weather, wither, and whatever he does prospers. In this verse, it underscores the Lord's protective escorting of his servant to waters of rest. The phrase is often translated as still or quiet waters, and it, it, it highlights the calmness of the waters. You've got to understand something about sheep. Sheep will not drink out of flowing streams. Sheep will only drink beside still waters. There's reason for that. Because of their weight, because of the, 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 the wool that they carry, and because of the shortness of their legs, if they were in a rushing stream, they would fall over. And they would literally die. So sheep will not go to rushing streams. They need quiet waters. Listen, your shepherd knows that. He knows you need quiet waters. And, but here's the thing. Catch this. This implies that the rest is actually The rest is actually the setting for the waters and the place in which they're found. See, in the Old Testament, the word for rest often refers to Canaan as a place of rest for Israel and to God's dwelling place. What this indicates to us in the, in the psalm is that Yahweh himself, listen to me, church, Yahweh himself is the place of rest in view of Psalm 23 too. So the ultimate, listen, the ultimate place of rest for the God's people is God himself. That's what David is teaching us. That's what he's showing us. This verse in Psalm 23 presents God's people, God's people with the wonder of abundant provision, materially and spiritually. That we have his son, the good shepherd. See, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, it's grounded in the reality that Jesus, our sovereign king, guides us through life, providing us for everything we need for each day for eternal life itself. Everything we have, everything that we've needed up to this present moment has come from his hand. And he will continue to provide for us until the day he comes to bring us into the eternal provision of his rest. Do you see your shepherd that way? Every need supplied. Christ as a good shepherd cares for us along the way, sustaining us each step and in each season. And when we pass through the waters of death, Christ will be with us. And he will guide us to the abundant pleasures into Emmanuel's land. Let's keep walking into verse 3. He restores my soul. For Christ leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. You know, there can be a problem for Christians, let me say, for me, with familiar and comfortable passages in the Bible. You know, we've heard, we've heard them a lot of times. We've heard them read many times. We've perhaps heard them preached a lot of times. Listen, you sit here sometimes and you hear messages week after week after week. It's really difficult sometimes to remember what it was that you heard, isn't it? We think we know what they mean and, and sometimes, uh, sometimes good, then to stop. And we read them again and we go through them phrase by phrase, word by word. We ask ourselves what they mean. It's good to think on them, to mull over them, to meditate on them, that we can hear something new and fresh in God's word as he speaks to us. He restores my soul, for example. Four simple words in English. Two simple words in Hebrew. But, but what do they mean? 
He restores my soul. Now, what do they say to us? What should they say to us? You know, we have before us the image of the shepherd with his flock. The images in verse 2 are clear, are they not? We see the lust pastures beside the quiet stream where the flock lies down under the watchful eye of the shepherd, but he restores my soul? What image does that call to your mind? How do we see the shepherd restoring the souls of his flock? You know, it's easy to think that David perhaps has shifted his gaze here from the sheep to the person. But the following phrases also refer to the flock and the shepherd's leading, leading us to ponder the connection of this clause with what comes after and what came before. Point that we See, he restores. It's at a point... It's at this point that we receive help from the other shepherd passages. Perhaps the best shepherd passage, church, is in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 34. I talked about it a minute ago. The passage may well have been in the mind of Jesus when he began his discourse on the good shepherd, which was read to us earlier in John 10. See, in Ezekiel 34, we hear the Lord condemning the shepherds of Israel. Part of their guilt is that they have not brought back the sheep that have strayed. When the Lord later in the passage states that he himself will be their shepherd, he says in part that he will bring back the sheep that have strayed. And there's our connection in verse 16. See, we tend to see the sheep lying peacefully in the meadow and we forget the sheep are contrary-minded. See, sheep get up. Sheep walk around. Sheep stray. Sheep get lost. It's the task of the shepherd to bring them back. In the psalm then, we see the shepherd active, going after the sheep that have strayed, bringing them back to the flock, and we can be comforted knowing that our good shepherd will not allow us to stray too far. He will search us out and bring us back to the flock. But listen, he restores my soul, my life, my nephesh. The good shepherd not only brings back the straying sheep, but he gives life to the dead. What do you mean, Brother John? You breathe life into the dead? Listen, church, here's how this struck me. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. Our good shepherd gives us new life. The sheep that are weak or sick or injured, those sheep, the shepherd, he strengthens and he heals and he binds up. He restores them to full life so they can once again stand and be able to walk and to feed and to hold their own as part of the flock. Our old life left us. It left us not only dead in our sins, brothers and sisters, but weak and sick. And yes, damaged by our sins. Listen, it's the good shepherd then who is restoring our souls. He binds up our wounds. He heals our sicknesses. He gives us strength in place of weakness. Our nephesh is not just our life, church, but the base of our appetites God, in restoring our souls, He makes us, listen, listen, He makes us hunger and thirst for righteousness. You can't do that on your own. 
He makes us thirst for hunger, for hunger and thirst for righteousness. He feeds that hunger. He quenches that thirst. Our nephish is also the base of our emotions, brothers and sisters. In restoring our souls, he gives us joy in the morning after a night of weeping. He turns our mourning into dancing. He gives us joy in the morning after a night of weeping. He removes our sackcloth of lamentations and distress, and he gives us the new clothing of gladness. See, this nephish also on occasion refers to our mental acts. It refers to our thinking and our knowing. Listen, in restoring our souls, the good shepherd restores our thinking and our knowing. That's so important. See, it's then that we begin to understand things in a new way. The word that was once no more than words on a page begins to have meaning. We begin to hear and understand and know the voice of our shepherd. We hear his call and we respond. And following his leading, listen, even if it takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. See, our restoration is, is not only simply individual, though the psalm is often read as a promise to the individual. Stay with me here, church. The shepherd is never the shepherd of just one sheep. He is the shepherd of the flock. And stay with me. Catch this. In restoring the lives of the flock, he also restores the life of the flock. This shepherd makes it a flock of healthy and strong sheep able to band together for the good of the flock. Ah, that's a picture sometimes we miss in their church. Except for New Life Church, I think you all know this, none of this restoration is instantaneous. Yeah? See, the healing of the sick and the wounded, that takes time. The strengthening of the weak, that takes time. The renewing of the appetites and of the mind, that takes time. The good shepherd uses the flock in restoring of the individual. As the individual grows stronger, he in turn is used by the shepherd in the restoring of other souls. See how important the flock is? May we be pleased to have our good shepherd restore our souls so that you and I can be used by him in restoring the souls of others. Number four, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, that's a, that's a hard one, church, but let me say something to you. This one, I think we all can really kind of break down on our own. You notice that it doesn't say there aren't any valleys. You notice it doesn't say that there aren't any dark shadows. Hey, you come on to Jesus, you come on to Jesus, and all your problems are taken care of. You're good to go. No. <laughs> it, it don't work that way. You know, because we're in a sin-laden world, there are still going to be valleys. There's going to be the shadow of death. But I think there's some great things in here to look at. If you look at this, it says, Yea, though I walk through. I want you to notice something here. It doesn't say in. It says through. 
Can I tell you something, church? I'm going to share something with you, and please don't get mad at me. I think there's some of us sitting in, in this room, and I've been there. The problem is, the verse tells us, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death. My problem is I camp there. I camp there. It's almost like I want to hurt myself. Let me camp here. Let me suck it all in. Oh, woe is me. Oh, God, where are you? And the voice whispers, keep walking. <laughs> hey, now you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, fear no evil. And see, the picture here for the sheep and the shepherd is in the summertime, the shepherd takes the sheep up to the high ground. In order to get up to the high ground, you have to go through the valleys. The valleys that you walk through are encompassed by high mountain peaks, rocky crags, crevices, dark spots. There is literally a valley of shadow in Palestine that the shepherds walk through. And at one point, that valley is 12 feet wide. Can you imagine? And what hides in rocks and crevices that kind of like sheep, wolves, bears, lions, predators? What hides in your valleys? Listen, don't camp there, church. Go through the valley. It says, what? I will fear no evil. Why? Here's the heart of the, of the, 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 the text, I believe. You are with me. For you are with me. You see, church, David could walk through a dark ravine, perhaps even death fearlessly, because the Lord walked with him. David explains his lack of fear in one way. You are with me. Listen, brothers and sisters, many of you here are younger than me, sometimes two, two times younger than me. Let me tell you something. The old man wants to tell you something. Walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God is still with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. He is still with you. The good shepherd will not leave you. He's not gone. Don't camp there. Get up, move. Listen, it's interesting to observe that the shadow of death, look, 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 the shadow of death drew David closer to the Lord. Brother John, how in the world did you get that? He addresses the Lord as you. Whereas in the peaceful places, in verse 2, he called the Lord He. <laughs> Watch out, I'm going to get up and dance. Do you see it? Do you catch it? The valleys, the struggle drew him closer to God. And listen, church, you don't understand. These mountain hills where the shepherds take their sheep, you have... When I was a kid in Washington, D.C., there was a hill. There are hills all over that area. I don't know if you know it or not. But there's a beltway that runs, runs around D.C., goes through Maryland. And there's these beautiful hills, the Great Sledding Hills. The only problem is they're so steep, they go down into a ravine, jump over a dirt road, and they go out into the expressway. That's the only problem with them. But here's the funny thing about it. Being the athlete I was as a kid, I thought how easy it would be for me to run down a hill. Hello, are you with me? Can you see me? Top of the hill, incline, maybe 40 degrees, 50 degrees. I am going to run down the hill. 
That's why my face looks the way it does. You run out of legs. You never run out of hill. You run out of legs. Now, the point is this. When a shepherd takes his sheep to the pastures, he doesn't run them straight up the hill. The other, you don't run them point A to point B. He runs them in circles to the point where he's going. The, the advantage is the footing is better, the control is better, the speed is better. The shepherd knows where he's going. The shepherd knows what he's doing. The shepherd has walked this field before. The shepherd leads the sheep. And one more thing, church. Can a shadow hurt you? You afraid of a shadow? I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you realize that Jesus already defeated that great enemy, right? He beat, he beat death on that cross for you and me. All you see is a shadow. But listen, here's the other part of that church. Think with me for a minute. What's required for a shadow? Hey. Keep walking through the valley because you're heading toward the light that creates the shadow. It's not the shadow, it's the light. Oh, come on, church. Let's walk into verse 5. You prepare prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. I believe the best in Psalm 23, as in life, is reserved for the end. Okay? Here, the classic picture of the shepherd and the sheep is insufficient to describe the richness of the relationship between the Lord and His people. So the picture shifts to that of a host and a guest. More precisely, since this picture is not just an ordinary party, this this metaphor, this picture, depicts a great king welcoming in his vassal into his house as an honored guest to a feast. See, this this royal context explains the presence of David's enemies as, as observers at the feast. Now listen, I don't know about you, but I don't normally want to invite my, my enemies to watch me eat. You know, I mean, we might have a different occasion. We might like it, but usually their presence might kind of spoil my appetite. But, but in this setting, their unwilling attendance at the feast is the important proof of a decisive shift in the balance of power. Now, church, that the great king has finally arrived, it's shifted. See, for too long, David's foes mocked him and his trust in Yahweh. And David was powerless to overcome them. For years, he had been crying out, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It must often have seemed to David and to the watching world as if the Lord had indeed forgotten him and allowed his enemies to rejoice in triumph. But you know, we all know that appearances can be deceptive, huh? See, with the arrival of the great king, justice is finally done. Listen, brothers and sisters, I know it's you, but that excites me. We can fight for justice here, and we will fight for justice here, and we do strive for justice here. But when the great king finally comes, justice will be done. It's coming. 
And, and David, listen, he's vindicated and he's shown to be the one whom the Lord loves and delights to honor. While his enemies are powerless in the setting and put to shame, the Lord spreads a fabulous feast for David and receives him as the great guest of honor at the banquet. Faithfulness to the terms of the covenant deserves and receives an invitation to the place of honor at the king's table. While the psalmist's enemies are judged church and found wanting. You see, the parable that Jesus told about the sheep and the goats, you remember that one? It similarly blends the pictures of sheep and shepherd with the king who hosts a banquet. Uh, That's one of the scariest passages in the New Testament, by the way. Here, too, the faithful sheep are invited to receive their reward while the unfaithful goats are cast out into the darkness. Do you remember that? See, but the ultimate distinction between faithful vassal and unfaithful enemy, between those invited to join the feast and those those left impotently standing in disgrace on the side, raises a question in the heart of every believer, or at least it should. Why would I be invited as an honored guest to such a feast reserved for faithful servants of the king? After all, our obedience is sporadic at best and often far less than it should be. We have frequently and deliberately turned our backs on obedience and joined the rebels in eager worship of their idols. Instead of steadfast love and mercy, we deserve God's covenant curse to pursue us all the days of our lives. That's what we deserve. Let's be honest. But church, this is where the beauty of the unmerited salvation that is ours in the gospel shines into view so clearly. For Jesus Christ, the Son of the great King, He came and he lived the perfectly obedient life that we should have lived in our place. Instead of rewarding him with honor and glory, the father gave the good shepherd over into the hands of his enemies. So he cried out in the words of the preceding psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? At the cross, Jesus embodied the ultimate symbol of a man under God's curse. His testimony there was not of abundant food, green grass, but starvation and thirst. So much so that that his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. See, his experience on the cross was was not that of the Lord's comforting presence with him in the valley. Restoring his life. His life. But for the forsakenness and abandonment as his lowly his, his life slowly ebbed away. Church, there was no rod. There was no staff at Calvary to comfort and protect him from all harm. Instead, he was turned over to the mocking grasp of his enemies to be tormented and tortured. Instead of dwelling in the Lord's house on the cross, 
he was left abandoned in the darkness to die alone, forsaken. Brothers and sisters, good news. His forsakenness is the foundation of your hope. Good news. His forsakenness is the foundation of our hope. We have far more reason than David did for confidently declaring, I shall not want, and I will fear no evil. Beloved, our shepherd has laid down his life for us and has been raised from the dead, putting to shame our last greatest enemy, death itself. Listen, now Jesus stands as a host of the great feast, the king who has gone before us to prepare a place for us in his father's house. Whether our present path takes us through green pastures or by still waters or snakes its way through the darkness of the valley of the shadow. Listen, church, we can be confident in this. Jesus has promised to welcome us into his kingdom on the last day. There will be a feast at his table. And along with all his saints from many nations, vindicated in the presence of all our foes, the Lord is indeed our good shepherd. The last verse, church. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I need to be, be also trusting that the goodness and mercy of God are following our every step. See, we need to be similarly confident and comforted, believing that every day of our lives, these two friends of David are with us in every step in life's journey. You know, as we meditate on Psalm 22, we learn that there exists a close, inseparable relationship between the good shepherd and his sheep. There's an unbreakable bond that unites us as one. Verse 6 reinforces this truth and it makes it very clear to us. David begins this verse by underscoring the certainty of everlasting union. The reality is seen in the very first word, surely. Some translations say even. Listen, church, there should be no doubt that what is stated here is to be believed with an unwavering assurance. No matter how dark the valley, regardless how deep the canyon Surely goodness and mercy belong to the sheep. The near presence of the shepherd with his loving care are irrefutable truth. His concern must never be doubted, nor his care questioned. With the certainty of God's unchangeable covenant love, His abundant goodness is firmly committed to us, the flock. See, when David testifies that goodness will follow him, he uses a word in Hebrew that, that's an adjective that means beautiful or pleasant. It represents the beautiful way in which God shows His love for His sheep. God is perfectly good in his godness and perfectly good in all his actions. Therefore, he can only do good to his flock. And this is demonstrated, church, in his attentive care for our many needs. David also declares that mercy follows him. 
This mercy is unconditional love. One of my favorite Hebrew words, hesed. Hesed. Unconditional love of God, the shepherd, towards those whom the Father has chosen and entrusted to Jesus. He loves them with his sovereign love that can never be extinguished, church. Even when you and I are faithless, he is faithful to us. He's a good shepherd. The Hebrew word translated follow pictures these two virtues, church, goodness and mercy. Listen, as actively pursuing David. I think they miss it when they translate, but you know, in the, in the CSP, pursue is a good word. It's actively, he is actively pursuing David. You know, it can be said that these two twin components of divine love are like two sheepdogs. You ever seen sheepdogs work? They help the shepherd enclose the flock. The shadow, the shadow the, they shadow the flock in order to steer them in the right direction. When the sheep go astray, these sheepdogs of goodness and mercy bring them back. When we slow down, when we slow down, these, these sheepdogs of goodness and mercy spur us on. And so it is with goodness and mercy. They, they pull up the rear. They're constantly guiding us closer to the good shepherd. Goodness and mercy. The steadfast love will pursue you, beloved, all the days of your life. There will not be a single day in which his faithful favor will not be close behind you. Listen to me, church. These are two parts of God's love. They, they will be nipping at your heels all day, every day, all night for the rest of your life. Hallelujah. Praise God. There will never be a day in which the goodness and mercy of the Lord will not be immediately nearby. We can never escape the loyal love of the Good Shepherd. You know, as I close, David sets forth the hope of dwelling with God in, in two, two ways. First, God's house is portrayed as the journey's end for his people. Using the shepherding imagery of Exodus excel, itself, David portrays the Lord as a shepherd throughout his life. The imagery then changes to the hospitality as guidance culminates in arrival. The shepherd becomes the host. Great pictures. Interestingly to me, though, the transition from the metaphor of sheep led by its shepherd to that of a guest honor, honored by his host, it occurs where? Through the valley of the shadow of death. For David then, listen, the hope of dwelling with God in the house of God was future-oriented. It was a future-oriented reality. It's called eschatology, if you will. David's expectation was sure since he, as a shepherd himself, listen to me, church, understood that arrival was not a burden placed upon the sheep. Fearful, witless, and wayward as we are. Rather, the guidance, care, and protection of the sheep along with their destination, listen, was the charge laid upon the shepherd. The shepherd. And lastly, God's house is presented as the beginning of eternal glory. To be sure that the delights and joys of God's house are tasted in this life. God said, I'll give them life and I'll give them life abundantly. 
especially among God's people, especially church here in Sabbath worship. This should be part of that experience. But moreover, the Lord has indeed spread a table in the wilderness throughout the journeys of Israel. We've seen them in the Word. But these instances, blessed as they are, are mere foretastes of the feasting God has prepared for His people in the house of a glorious new kingdom. Anointing the head with oil and pouring into the cup until it overflows, these are descriptions meant to portray lavish hospitality. He gives us exceedingly, abundantly more. Lavish hospitality. Our Good Shepherd is here depicted as an, as an ancient Near Eastern host who generously honors and fills his guests with extravagant abundance. In Psalm 36, 8, David elaborates, saying that God's people feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. The word David uses here for delights is built, listen church, from the same root for Eden, the paradise of God, where humanity once enjoyed the delights of his fellowship. Our journey's end, church, listen, our journey's end is also a new beginning the beginning of, of a supremely blessed life with God and his people in a paradise more glorious than Eden. Yet even honored guest doesn't quite capture David's hope or his heart. Such a lavish hospitality is rather, listen to me church, it's poured out upon sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. Are you a son? Are you a daughter this morning? Through the atoning work of Jesus Christ and union with him by the Holy Spirit, sinners may become the children and household of God. Listen to me, born of God. Like the returning prodigal son held in a prolonged embrace by his joyful father, so our journey's end and eternity's beginning are really a homecoming, church. A homecoming. And even God's house is lacking. Listen to me, church. Even God's house is lacking until all His children come home. Listen, led by the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid down His life for the sheep, you and I, God's people, will indeed enter His gates with thanksgiving in his courts with praise. Thank God and amen. Father, we bless you.